welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK. Which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. And then we got a knock on the door and a a doctor came in to apologise and say, basically, this is it. And obviously, that's that's something you expect to hear and something you you kind of uh, replay a lot of times over in your head. So we were given about four or five minutes to hold him. Um, and actually, he'd actually pass away in my, uh, my wife's arms. One in 150 babies dies either before, during or shortly after birth. And, and, and you know, you're surprised. Everybody is all, always surprised because it's always described as a rare event. And what we like to say is it's not rare, it's uncommon. Welcome to episode 10. So in this episode, we wanted to talk about that need that I think a lot of us have, most of us have, maybe all of us have, to understand why our babies die. And also what has been a real learning curve for me is to understand the huge monumental difference parents can make in talking about this and the difference it can make, not just now, but to babies born in the future. It's so important. And parents are the only people who are constant throughout that journey of pregnancy and birth and the baby dying. And to have that continuity of information and input is absolutely vital and so important for parents too, as you say, to be able to understand what on earth has happened and why. And the generosity of bereaved parents in never ever wanting that to happen to anybody else. So being able to feed into that process so that lessons can be learned and things can be changed if if it was something that was changeable so that it doesn't happen again and it's it's so important for parents to to be able to be part of that and so when babies are born and then sadly pass away or babies are stillborn there is something called a review that takes place Um, and we speak to Charlotte Bevan about this. Charlotte is joint head of the Saving Babies Lives team at SANS which focuses on uh, supporting research, highlighting issues around avoidable baby deaths and making maternity care safer. We started off by asking her what a review actually was. So the reviews of the investigations that are undertaken by the health service when a baby dies to understand what happened and if good care was delivered. And if it wasn't delivered, why and how can they improve care going forward? So SANS supports something called the Perinatal Mortality Review Tool, which is used across the UK to review every baby death. It's collecting information on that specific baby and so that care is improved for future families. And then when parents do take part in reviews, this then forms a larger piece of research or a larger review, if you like, doesn't it? The perinatal mortality review. So every single individual review across the UK goes into this PMRT tool and they're able to spit out data about how many parents were engaged in the review, what did the review say about avoidable deaths, because the the reviews grade care. So they say, 
care was good, there was nothing we could do, or actually care wasn't very good, and we could have done something to prevent this baby from dying. That's called a grading of care. And they found that one in five of those gradings of care suggested that this baby's life potentially or was likely to have been saved if care had been different. And that's quite a profound finding because we are talking about the lives of hundreds of babies every year. And and that's without changes to policies or changes to technology or medicine or that's just doing no more than is regulated to be done at the moment. That's just following guidelines, existing guidelines, yes. And there'll be a piece there about listening to parents. So the mother came in and she or she called and she said she had reduced fetal movements, but we didn't listen and we didn't call her in and we didn't give her extra surveillance and we could have done. And if we had have done, we don't know for sure that we could have saved the baby, but we think we potentially could have done it if we'd followed guidelines and she'd had that extra surveillance. So there's a piece in there about how parents complete the clinical picture. So you have the clinical picture in your notes of what happened, but what you don't have is the family's voice, is the mum's voice saying, actually, I did call or I did speak to my community midwife and I told her I had itching, but she said it was fine. And then the baby dies as a result of ICP in pregnancy, which is a sort of liver condition in pregnancy. That was a specific case that came through the Bristol study, where if they had had the mother's narrative in the notes, they would have known that her voice was instrumental to saving this baby in terms of getting extra care. But they hadn't even asked her what her, her narrative was. And, the, and, and when they got round to asking her, they realized that actually they didn't have a th- th- 360 degree view of her care because they didn't have her saying, actually, I had spoken to my community midwife. I had said this. So if they hadn't have spoken to her, they would have just said there was nothing we could have done. In fact, that's what the review said. There was nothing we could have done. And she said, but hold on, I called. And when they put that in the notes, it changed the whole grading of care. So, yes, it is quite distressing. Yeah. It shows just how important, really, then parents are to that review process and how, just how much of a difference that they can make. The the, the right questions asked at the right time in the right way, the answers that those parents are then able to give, the difference that that will make to the conclusion over why a baby died. And also, I suppose, for individuals, for getting an element of peace, you know, into just having that tangible answer. Why did my baby die? We show a video of a lovely mum called Chloe Baker who lost her baby now 12 or 13 years ago. And she never felt that she was fully engaged in the review of his death. There were loads of unanswered questions. And in the video, she talks about how massive it's been not really understanding why Solomon died and not being able to have that narrative and share it with family and share it with her kids and how it kind of stops her in her tracks and she's in the middle of the supermarket and she just can't shake it off. And um, it really, you could hear a pin drop when I play that um, piece of film because I think people think, you know, that you leave the unit, you get pregnant again, maybe if you that's what you want and if you're lucky enough to, and then life goes on. And they don't realise, I mean, Chloe went on to have two more little boys, you know, to all intents and purposes. She looks like a perfectly happy, normal mom of a lovely family. But actually, she has this backstory. And that complicates not just life for her, but her relationships and at work. It's really fascinating, the work that, that you're doing, and how it can make a difference to everyone. I think sometimes there's a feeling that unless you yourself have gone through 
a bereavement, none of this is, is relevant. But actually, it's all entirely relevant. No matter your gender, it, it is completely relevant to changing how people are delivered into the world in the future. Yeah, completely. And it always bewilders me because I think this is the beginning of life. It's the beginning of family and that's the beginning of society. And if we don't invest in this period of life, then what does that say about how we value family and society as a whole? We've sort of really missed a trick here not to focus on this area. And even for those women who have good outcomes, you know, they want to feel listened to, supported and then able to be great parents. And it has a huge impact on women's mental health as well. And we know that mental health provision is really challenged and overwhelmed at the moment. And I think women's mental health, perinatal mental health is an area that we really need more focus and more investment in not just for bereaved mothers, although that's massively challenging and adds all sorts of complexities, but for all women going through childbirth and experiencing mental health issues before, during or after. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think if you, I sort of feel in a way, the women who have the poorest outcomes are really just the tip of the iceberg. And if you're able to, if you're able to address the tip of the iceberg in a way it filters down to everybody else so what you learn from those terrible experiences is something about care for everyone how do we listen to all families to all women because i think we've just begun to listen to some and i think it's really essential that we understand and try to pick away at why black mothers for instance twice as likely to, to lose a baby perinatally and asian mums are 1.6 times as likely to lose a baby perinatally and i think there's a piece there for me there's a listening piece there for me it's not just about demographics or deprivation or smoking or public health it's it's, it's not it's not just about that it's about trust that women and families from those backgrounds have in healthcare and why messages are not well communicated, why support isn't done well, why women and families don't feel listened to. And I wouldn't just put the ethnicity disparity in that mix. It's also women who come from less educated backgrounds, socially deprived areas, who have special educational needs, possibly who don't read very well, may have physical disabilities. I think we are missing a huge spectrum of women out there who are having poor outcomes. And I think the research in that area, because those people are seldom heard, the research in that area has to be, be done in them. You can't send out a survey and expect some of those groups to kind of open their laptops. They may not have laptops. They may not have Wi-Fi and respond to an online survey. I think you, you need to go to where those people in those groups and those communities live. You need to work through intermediaries who they trust, whether those are charities, other third sector groups, and you need to do it in a much more targeted way through individual interviews or focus groups or in some supported environment and not expect people to go, oh, there's a survey online. Oh, I think I'll fill that out um, to hear those voices. So I would, I would really love research to become sensitive to the idea that they are not hearing from everyone and that if they want to, then they need to work differently. If they haven't been heard or they have been excluded, it, it's hard then to feel confident to be able to contribute to something and to, to feel as if 
that information is going to be protected, that you're going to be respected in that process. Yeah. And they want to know what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? And how is care going to improve for other people, for my community, for my group? So I think we have to show impact for people more powerfully. Researchers have to show impact more powerfully. You know, you said, we did, um, that kind of thing. We've done a piece of research recently with Leicester University, um, reaching out to Black and Asian mums in focus groups to hear from them. I mean, they're small numbers, but it's the beginning, I think, of a conversation we are now having with groups of, of families who are seldom heard in research. So hopefully those sorts of environments and formats, and particularly with researchers who are very good at this area, possibly because they come from them, those communities themselves or because that's just simply their focus, that helps a lot because you're already going through a trusted intermediary. Yeah. And I think we're also incredibly lucky that we have specialist bereavement support services officers now at SANS as well working. We have Patrice who's working with Black and Black British parents and Madhuri who's working with South Asian parents to reach out to communities who may not have seen SANS as a community that is supportive or welcoming. So making a difference in, in those areas too. But with all of this work and with all of these studies, I guess I suppose... I feel that all communities are missing out on a before moment. You know, obviously we are talking about reviews which happen after a baby's died today and that has guided the conversation. But I feel like there's work to be done before you get to that point in empowering parents to have the right information. You know, I'm a parent and I've been in that situation where I've noticed that movements have changed and you don't know how how much to push. You know, you don't know what the rules are. You don't know what the regulations are. What should you be, de- be demanding? A blood test, a scan, a, you know, a fetal movement, Doppler, you know, you, you just don't know. You, I suppose I feel like there should be some work done to help empower parents to have the information that we need so that when we're in this situation, we know what's appropriate and we know whether we should be demanding more or whether we should be saying yes they're the medical professional they've made the right decision and feel comfortable in that you know if you identify what goes wrong for women who have the poorest outcomes you're able to improve care for all women and I think there isn't a piece here completely around that and the information as you're saying Caroline that that all women should have to feel empowered to raise the alarm, to know what they should expect in pregnancy and to know what care they should expect if something goes wrong in pregnancy. This is a public health piece of work that SANS has been very engaged and involved in for a long time now. This is a classic case of SANS listening to parents. A parent came to us and said, we never knew this could happen. We went to our midwife after it happened and we said, why don't you tell parents this happens? And the midwife said, we can't, it would freak all parents out. We can't possibly talk about stillbirth. And that parent came back to us and we went, oh, we, we don't really know what to do with this. And then we thought again, and we thought harder. And we realized actually there is something we can do about this. We can have some sort of consensus on what information pregnant people would like during pregnancy to understand risks. And do we call it risk? Do we call it stillbirth? What do we call it? So we ran some focus groups and we asked women who'd either just had a baby or were pregnant with a second baby about stillbirth risk. So it was kind of tricky. You know, it was worrying information. You know, one in 150 babies dies either before, during or shortly after birth. It's quite difficult information to take on board. And of course, everybody is always amazed at the statistics. Yes. 
one in 150 babies dies either before, during, or shortly after birth. And, and, and you know, you're surprised. Everybody is all, always surprised because it's always described as a rare event. And what we like to say is it's not rare, it's uncommon. And, and it's about putting that risk into perspective and empowering women to have information, but for that information to, to empower them to make choices that are right for them. And so we ran these focus groups with the statistics and we said, and they said, well, what are the risks? And we said, well, smoking is a risk. Having a high BMI is a risk. We know that some women from ethnic backgrounds, that's a risk. We know that reduced fetal movements is a risk. And we need to talk now about which of these messages we can communicate and how. And of course, there are, there are messages around ethnicity that, is, that are not, you know, you can't say because you're a certain ethnicity, you've got a higher risk. That's not very helpful. What you should have is personalized care. It's not a risk. You can't manage being South Asian or manage being under 18 or over 38 or something to do with your age, a risk you can't change. Um, but of course, you can manage other risks. So you can know that if your baby has a change in the pattern of its movements, that that might suggest that that baby is not well and that you need to go into hospital to be to be monitored. So we listened to the people we spoke to in these focus groups. They asked us to talk about safer pregnancy and not to talk about stillbirth risk. And out of that, we developed the Safer Pregnancy website, which everybody can access now. It's at saferpregnancy.org.uk. We describe it as kind of plain talking advice about things that could go wrong in pregnancy or things to look out for in pregnancy. So that might be to do with alcohol consumption or smoking, and it might be to do with what you should expect if you have gestational diabetes, what sort of care you should expect. But I think you're completely right. There's a sort of, there's something missing from the other half of the narrative, which is you're receiving care, but you're not entirely sure about why you're receiving a particular type of care. And you don't really understand the difference between low and high risk because maternity tends to be very binary. You're either low risk or you're high risk. But of course, risk is dynamic. What we're looking to do is identify when risk changes. And if a woman doesn't know, if someone who's pregnant doesn't know what that change, that dynamic nature of changing risk looks like, so she knows how, you know, that she should be worried or she should call up or she, and she should be listened to and she's not getting the care that she knows she should get, then she's disempowered in that story. Listening to Charlotte has been such an eye-opener for me because I didn't realise fully the huge difference that we as parents can make to prevention for the future. It's It's been really eye-opening for me. They really can. And that's why it's so important that they are involved because parents aren't always involved in review. And it's important. And it's something that Sands have been campaigning for for a long time. Now, our second guest on this episode is Nick. He and his wife, Gemma, went through the review process themselves because they lost their little boy, Barney, neonatally. He spoke so well about what that process entailed for, for him and his wife and also for the difference that it's made to their journey and it's made just to them as a family. We had absolutely no issues, really, for the first sort of three quarters of the pregnancy no problems at all growth was all fine movements were good etc and it was all very exciting as you did imagine it would be and then towards the end my my wife got a, a liver condition which makes the skin itchy it usually ends up in having uh, medical treatment and then 
probably leading to induction and getting the baby out earlier than maybe it was. So that was our path. And we got further and further into the pregnancy with this condition in the background steadily getting worse. It wasn't particularly flagged to us as a major, major issue. A lot of people get it, but we were given the option of having an induction and we were, I think, in hospital probably about two weeks later. And that's when things started to go wrong for us, unfortunately. You've been called in for the induction. How were you feeling at that point? I think we still felt okay. And we were really worried about Gemma's conditioning getting worse and then that impacting the baby at some stage. I guess we thought we were in the right place at the right time. We felt like we'd made all the right decisions throughout, to be honest. And I think looking back at, at walking into the hospital, I think we felt quite excited by it, actually. But the day was finally here. I dare say both of us, and I don't want to speak fully for my wife, but we have spoke about this since. We were both very nervous about being parents, as you were. First child, are you ready for all this? All the sort of usual kind of trepidations you get with that. Life's going to change big time. When we leave this place, we have a child in the house. And what is that going to be like? The conversations about our own relationship. As a three, will it be different? And things like that. So I think that's where we were at that place. I don't think we sensed sort of danger on the horizon. And we'd done quite sort of due diligence with hospitals as well. We were recommended the hospital we went to as one of the best performing. It felt like the right choice of hospital. So we, we felt very comfortable and confident in our decisions. I'd say it was only really about six or seven hours into being in hospital that we thought it started to feel like things weren't quite right, I guess. And so what happened from there? It's a catalogue of things for us. It's very hard to place one thing on it. Definitely a few errors hospital-wise that we're obviously working through with them. But from an experience point of view, it was just starting to be COVID. So it was, it was March as, as COVID was becoming a thing and it was around Europe and everyone was worried about it arriving. So I think the hospital was slightly on guard for that but most of the processes i think were still the same at that point there wasn't any massive changes we were eventually taken to one of the wards where it did feel out the way towards the back of the hospital let's say quite away from the more maternity wards and in a quieter ward which i did question at the time i did say my wife's here because there's a condition involved we're being inducted because there's a condition involved that we do need to be monitored and cared for which i thought was taken on board but uh, maybe not um and then I was sent home, unfortunately. And my biggest regret, really, and this, I share this with a lot of my friends since. And during COVID, I've had two or three of my friends have had their first children during COVID. And my biggest regret was going home when told to, which <laughs> if people know me, I don't often do as I'm told. And this was, I think, probably a bit of a surprise to myself. But it was... It was relayed to me as the best interest, basically. You go home, get some rest because you'll need it when you come back in in four or five hours or whenever it, it might be. And this was around time because we went in around six o'clock to be inducted. So I went home and then obviously didn't sleep at all because why would you? <laughs> so that was a, a silly thing to do. And then I got a call around three in the morning, which is basically my wife on the phone in a lot of pain. Now I expected that because that's what happens. But it did feel different the way she was talking to me. I got the impression something was wrong. So I, I drove in quite quickly. And when I got there, I found a scene that I wouldn't have expected, if I'm honest. It was my wife in a great deal of pain, very few medical staff around. She wasn't, hadn't been given any, not many sort of painkillers and things like that. We wanted to use a TENS unit to help her with that. And that was in our birth plans. We had a very clear birth plan that we gave to the midwives when we arrived. It's 
seven or eight bullet points, not, not like War and Peace. And it was very apparent that hadn't been read at all because she didn't have the TENS machine on at this point. So I, I tried to do that myself, but she was in too much pain. So that's when I went to go and try and get a midwife to come and help us. And when I went to go and get the midwives, I vividly remember this bit. I went to the room where they, I think, do their paperwork at administration. There's three of them just sat there doing admin work. And obviously that, for me, that was like, my wife's in quite a lot of pain. And I, I got the distinct feeling that, you know, women are always in pain. So it's almost a bit of a roll the eyes, a bit of a shrug. It's it's another dad over the top because he's not been here before, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt slightly belittled by that, if I'm honest. But I did manage to get some help and they did go and, and tend to Gemma. But it, within those sort of time frames between kind of two o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, they missed scans on the heartbeat and things that they should have done. And one of the scans, does it has, we've never had it. It's, it didn't record on the machine and we've never retrieved it. So it, we can assume either it wasn't done or wasn't done properly and these are the key moments really for us understanding that maybe barney was in a bit of trouble and then my wife basically waters broke to some extent around six o'clock a head midwife came after a buzzer was pressed lots of lights emergency etc etc and to be fair to hospital we were whisked away quite quickly at that point to go into one of the birthing rooms and basically forceps and things like that were used to get Barney Barney out. I look back at that time now and I, it feels like missed opportunities, unfortunately. And I do think there was a period between me being at home and between midwives not really looking after my wife overnight where things probably could have taken a different path. It's not a medical view, it's a personal view, but some of these missed opportunities have definitely been flagged in some of the reports that we've been involved with and when he came out he wasn't in great condition obviously lack of oxygen and things and then when they were trying to resuscitate barney they spent too long trying to do various things and lost basically lost track of time and there wasn't a senior enough person on call who arrived in time to do the things that needed to be done to save him so we spent another 40 minutes when he was when he was on this earth not really helping him and in fact doing the opposite there's a lot of cooling of the baby that went on that actually gave him hypothermia and gave him the opposite of what you what he actually needed at that time. We were in a room at this point thinking that things are bad, but he's still around and we'll deal with what we deal with. If it's brain damage, that's fine. We just want to have a, want to have little Barney in our arms. And then we got a knock on the door and a, and a doctor came in to apologize and say, basically, this is it. And obviously that's, that's not something you expect to hear and something that you, you kind of, uh, replay a lot of times over in your head. Uh, it does make me sad now, as you can probably tell. So we were given about four or five minutes to hold him. Um, and actually, he'd actually pass away in my, uh, my wife's arms, unfortunately. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like to go through those moments. But also, for whilst you are in those moments and you are so deep in every emotion because it's a whirlwind, to then find that strength of mind to say, actually, yes, we want to be involved in a review. I mean, obviously, the circumstances surrounding a baby's death will always be looked into at a hospital, but that doesn't necessarily always involve parents. Best practice is that it does. But but I can't imagine what it's like at a parent at that point to be there with all of those emotions and to still say, do you know what? this review is something that we want to, to take part in. 
How did that situation come about? I don't, I guess there's a few ways actually into that. I've worked in the public sector and one of the things I'm very cognizant of is that ability to learn from mistakes and for them not to happen again. So I come from a background of that. I think I wanted to turn what was quite, what was very difficult moments into something that would be positive. And I don't have medical skills and things like that. But the only thing, way I could really surmise to do it was to understand the issues, what happened mainly, feed them back to the hospital. And we did meet them. We've met them probably four or five times since the staff since to talk them through various issues. But to try and put in place that feeling of change and um, it doesn't happen again. I think there is a tendency in some hospitals, probably not all, but to just treat childbirth as a miracle. And it's, it comes at it from that angle of it's always a miracle when actually it's not really, it's a scientific medical procedure that's been going on for years and years, decades. So I come at it from what went wrong shouldn't go wrong again in the, in, in the same circumstances. I'm totally aware that midwives listening to this would, would be kind of, well, there's lots of things that can go wrong. And yeah, absolutely there are. But it wouldn't be right, in my mind, for the same order of things to go wrong as they did with Barney. And that's where I come at it from. There are lessons to be learned there. And I think having the independent views from various reports that we've been involved with gives us that opportunity to change things. It gives us the opportunity to make sure Barney's life meant something. He means the world to us. I and mean, we've got a little leaf in a local a crematorium that we go and see on a regular basis. But we want him to mean a little bit more than that to other people as well, that outside of our family. And that was kind of the one, not legacy is often used word, but it is a legacy. He was around for four hours, but maybe he could help other parents and families not be in the same situation. So that's always been the driver. So I think we were fairly early on, obviously grieving, but with a sort of resilience and a determination, let's say, to 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 make sure that we that we could make a difference. Some of the things that we encountered, we just didn't know existed. We didn't know SANS existed. We didn't know, you know that a lot of these charities and organisations to help people existed because you don't until you're in the situation. It, it was a big kind of let's make sure Barney's remembered. Let's make sure he makes a difference through us. And also just the, the charities that supported us, just a big believer in raising their profile and, and helping them get the finances in and, and are able to support families when it does happen. That They were the key drivers. And, and Gemma and I were, and it were both on the sort of same page quite early on with that. And people are always quite surprised how early we got into that frame of mind. But I think it was natural for me, at least. And what does the actual process involve? the actual review process itself what does that involve it's difficult and, and you know i will, will say to i say to any parents out there it's difficult it's worth doing but be prepared to to tell your story multiple times and, and i think one of the things that that we did to help us was we wrote down quite a lot of things early on when they happened so when they were fresh in the mind and we can look back at the notes later on of what our views were and things like that but in in terms of being it, mainly it's interviews you sit not too dissimilar to doing a podcast it's, it's you sit on especially during covid you sit on 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 calls with people and talk them through your understanding of what happened why when how what you did what you think didn't happen what you think did happen and we spent quite a long time doing that in various guises uh, um, just to sort of get down and then the investigators will go and speak to other people who are involved so maybe the midwives or the medical professionals in the room or some of the people who had maybe checked Gemma through her pregnancy and things like that and get their take on things and I, I think what I've seen is quite a healthy 
system in terms of reviewing. I, th I think there is there's enough questions being asked when things go wrong for things to be fixed. But I think at the other end, when the report comes out, that's crunch time. And I, I sometimes think the report becomes the end point rather than the start. And I think that's something that needs to to change fundamentally. But in terms of the mechanics of it, it's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of remembering and going through the story. And, you know, what, like I said, that's quite difficult to do. You either go two ways, I've found. You either become very emotional and can't complete it, or you become slightly distant from your own story and just tell it, which can feel a little bit almost out of body in some ways. So that's been our experience. It's an interesting point that you make about the the review and how you have the sense that when the review is finished and you're handed that, you know, that final report, that it's the end point rather than the beginning mm. point. What does the final report look like? Because in my mind, having not gone through it, I would have imagined that final report would have, and this is, these are the action points for the future and this is what's going to happen next. Do they not contain things like that? They do. Ours did. Some don't, but I think most do. It's usually the sort of structure is here's the stories from the people involved. Here's where things definitely did go wrong from a medical, practical, operational point of view, i.e. this should have happened at this time and it didn't. For us, one example is that is, is the heartbeat wasn't measured, you know, a couple of times um, during the night when it should have been. That's a that's an error, you know, a medical error. So it's kind of clear on that. So recommendations usually point to those sort of things, i.e. this should be done or there should be processes in place to make sure it's done. But I, what we found was quite helpful is that they give sort of a more holistic view as well. So some of the recommendations we had was that oversight wasn't what it should be in terms of the resuscitation of Barney. There was a lot of people working on him, so it wasn't really a resource issue, but there was no one really stepping back and looking overall, thinking that's not clearly not working, so we need to try something else. It was just everyone beavering away and trying to save it. It's, a, it's hard to criticise because they were trying to do everything they possibly could, and I'd never say that they weren't, but they were going down a route that wasn't working, and they lost track of time on that route. That helicopter view that you describe, Nick, is something that already happens in A&E yes, with great yeah. effect. That there's somebody standing back and just observing what's going on and looking at the time and making sure that people, because it's so easy, I think, in an emergency situation to get completely absorbed in what you're trying to do and not see that bigger picture. So it is something that is already within the NHS. And that's the one thing we've been trying to talk to the hospital about. But my point on the reports being the end point is slightly pointed is because of our experience in the last three years that we had a very open door to the hospital and the staff and to talk through Barney's case, make sure it didn't happen again, etc. And we were very welcome with that. And they have conversations with us and would be very seemed to be very pleased and engaged with what we were saying. But over time, these things do dwindle away and contact gets less and less. And it does feel it might not be intentional, but it does feel that families like my own are, are sort of managed out slightly. A report arrives. It's a tragic events. It's just one of those things is how it feels to us right now, because we've not spoken to hospital now for probably about nine months, which is the longest stretch we've had and had no contact. And which is disappointing because what we want, what we offered them was to talk to their midwives about our experience, to talk to some of their staff about why certain things are, are important from a family point of view. And we were kind of got the full, yeah, green light. This is great. Thank you so much for spending the time and helping us with this. And it's really just become a distant email trail, let's say. And we're trying to 
wrestle with that currently. It's it's brought back a few things in the last sort of two or three months where it's, are we really going to make a change here or not? But we're still determined and we'll still keep trying. And the importance and the driver, as you've said, for you has always been make a change. So this must be for you a very difficult time period. Hugely. Hugely. It's, uh, I think it's, it's been the hardest since it happened for me. I think there was always a feeling we had some momentum until the last few months. I'm a busy person. I have a busy job. <laughs> uh, we do have a little boy now called Willoughby, who's as good as gold. So he keeps us busy. But it, it's hard to bang your head against a brick wall that you feel shouldn't be there. And I would say to any sort of families as well that are probably going through a similar experience is do keep trying and do accept peaks and troughs. I have a few weeks where I just think I cannot, I haven't got the energy to do this anymore. And then lo and behold, three or four weeks after that, you actually, you get a sudden surge of right. No, come on, let's not let this sit. And you get a couple of days of real energetic kind of, you know, campaigning or whatever you want to call it uh, and get back on the case. So I, I think parents in the similar situation, just accept that. Don't feel like you've got to keep hammering away every day because you'll make yourself fairly ill doing that i think but yeah in terms of period it's been my toughest period i think this since it happened because i did expect more to have happened by now now as well as being part of the review panel the, the review for barney you also took it one step further and you have become part of a study called discern can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, definitely. It, it, again, it was another opportunity to to change things potentially. And we were, we were very keen because it, it looked like it was going to look at the wider picture and how families like us have ended up in our situation. And I think that's really important because it's it was two things for us. It was not only was it let's keep trying to change things, keep trying to improve things and, and reports and studies are definitely a way to do that. It gave us the opportunity to engage with a few other people that we've not previously had a similar situation to us. And we've done a bit of that through SANS calls where other parents have had uh, um, incidents similar to ours and we would talk on on, on Teams calls or, or in person. And it, it was an extension of that. It was an ability to talk to professionals who have seen it and to other families who have been through it uh, and talk about your experiences and be assured that it's not just there is a sort of uh, sadly a growing cohort of people who have been through these things and there is i think there's strength and there's a sort of um solidarity to, to everybody taking part in these things together and it, it just amplifies the voice i can look at my own hospital experience and try and change that but really we're talking about a whole system and maternity should be better in this country there's no doubt about that and how we get there is really needs to be figured out by people who know what they're doing and i think studies like this help to do that they help to inform that sort of wider picture now if you'd like any more information on any of the studies we've spoken about on reviews how they work how to take part you can find all of the information in our show notes as well as on the SANS website. So we like to end each episode on a bright note. And so these are Charlotte Bevan's hopes for the future. We have really begun a very powerful journey here in engaging parents in research and in identifying that we can prevent babies from dying. We really can. A, a recent report this week will say that one in five deaths is potentially preventable. And I think the parent's voice at the heart of that is so important. So I, I really hope and I believe that we can keep momentum going and get these numbers down so that parents do not have to endure the avoidable death of a baby. Voices of Baby Loss is an under-the-mast creative audio production.